Welcome to the Lilypad Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Lilly. Every week I interview someone who is making their unique mark in the world by doing what they love and offering their gifts and talents to help support their communities. I talk to authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, artists, musicians, and everyday people just like you who are making a difference in the world. I hope you're inspired by these conversations to get out there and do your part to make your community better. A lot of people say that they are writers when they, instead what they do is they write. Like, like if you want to be a writer who is going to be financially successful, you better talk to other financially successful writers uh, who are in that genre versus people who have like all sorts of cockamamie ideas for what actually happened. So you have to talk to other people, uh, however you can, who are actually doing the thing that you want to do. The question in many ways is, is uh, what will impact will I make in 30 years? Like if people look back at the stuff that I've done, will anything have changed because of me? Maybe. I mean, maybe not. I mean, it's sort of hubris to think that we have like all that much influence. Uh, I just try to live my life as well as possible. Hey there, podcast listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Lilypad Podcast. <laughs> I'm recording this intro from my car because, uh, you know, as you all know, I'm several weeks behind on episodes and um, it's, this life has been crazy. I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna have to do a solo Saturday, maybe tomorrow, and talk to you guys about everything that's been going on. But this was an interview that I I've known since I've started the podcast that I wanted to do. Um, but just you know, this person's schedule and, and my schedule were just difficult to sort of get matched up together because he travels a lot, which is a great thing. It's necessary for for his career. And, um, but I interviewed Scott Carney. Scott Carney is an investigative journalist who's published several books, um, all of which have sort of revealed or or broken ground on some um, major issues that maybe people weren't aware of. And uh, the first book of Scott's that I read was called What Doesn't Kill Us. And I stumbled onto it because it was during the time that I was doing my Wim Hof training, uh, which is the, you know, the breathing exercises and the cold exposure to get myself ready for the polar plunge. And I learned about Scott's book. Scott actually spent a considerable amount of time with Wim Hof um, because he actually went to try to prove that the man was a charlatan and, and <laughs> that his claims were, were false and uh, that the whole thing was just, uh, to quote Scott, bullshit. But Know, the more time he spent with Wim and practiced the Wim Hof movement, the method, the more he began to realize that there is some truth to it. Notice I use the word some truth because as you'll hear from our conversation, you know, some things have sort of come to light that have led Scott to sort of going back to being a little more skeptical about some of the claims that Wim makes now. So, um, but this was an excellent interview because I, Scott and I have been online friends for a few years now. Ever since I read his book, I connected with him and then we've chatted back and forth on Instagram. So it was great to do a live and see him face to face and talk to him. And, um, but the, uh, the best thing about Scott is just that he has the right idea in terms of seeking the truth. And, you know, that's one of the things that I've really liked and appreciated about his writing is that he's not afraid to ask the questions that other people are not asking or that, you know, you've been told not to ask. 
and he's not afraid to defy conventional science or conventional belief systems to get to the truth, to get to you know the evidence uh, that points to something else. So I enjoyed this conversation. We <laughs> we do kind of get up on a on our soapbox a couple times, but you know what? It's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. Uh, we have some really good conversations, not just about his books and about Wim Hof, but you know about what's going on in the world right now and, and what we think is happening. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Without further delay, here is Scott Carney. What consent. All right. <laughs> well, Scott Carney, welcome to the Lilypad Podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm great, man. Good to good to see you finally. We've been talking on on Instagram for years at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to get you on because uh, your book, What Doesn't Kill Us, uh, was one of the right books at the right time for me. Um, I had recently sort of uh, learned about Wim Hof and about things like cold exposure, you know, cold showers, things of that sort. And uh, not long after that, I, I learned about your book that had just been published that year. Um, so uh, to say that, that, you know, you're definitely, your writing is one of the things that has made an impact on me would, would absolutely be true. Um, I'm going to give you an opportunity to talk about that, but uh, let me just real quick for my listeners who might be familiar, talk a bit about uh, what kind of is the focus of that book. And that is a man named Wim Hof. Uh, my listeners have heard me talk about Wim Hof before, and uh, he is uh, a man that and Scott would tell you, he didn't really discover a lot of the things that he does, but kind of uncovered and I guess shared with the world is a good way to put it. But uh, Wim Hof is a man who trains people uh, and, and really talks about the importance of cold exposure. Uh, and he also has a breathing technique that is very, very helpful and effective for a lot of, of issues that people have had over the years. Um, you know, and Scott can talk more about that in the specifics. But I learned about Wim because I was training. And yes, I was actually training for a polar plunge. And <laughs> I'd never been in ice water before, or cold water like that before. And I wanted to prepare myself. I know some people just go and they just do those things. But I'm, I was going to treat it like, like a race, you know, almost. I need to train and prepare. And that's how I found out about Wim. Um, but uh, Scott, I think I want to ask you before we, we talk about the book, because I, when I learned that you were a journalist, an investigative journalist, um, and I learned about your, you know, your earlier books, but it, it kind of surprised me. I think one of the first videos I saw of you, you were in Colorado and you just in shorts, just jumped out your front door right into a big thick pile of snow. <laughs> and I thought, man, how did this, this gentleman go from being an investigative journalist, you know, the kind of thing you think of someone just being a little more academic and bookish, uh, to traveling all the way to Poland to work with this man who, who does things that people would think were crazy. Just absolutely. In fact, when I tell people about Wim Hof, they say things like, I could never do that. And I, I think about you, not to downplay that, you know, you were a healthy person and you, you know, you were doing, but oftentimes people think of people who do that. They see someone like Wim Hof and they think, oh yeah, of course he does it. He's a crazy person. <laughs> but you know, maybe an average Joe like me, I'm a high school teacher, I'm a father of four, you know, I'm not the kind of person someone might expect, you know, jumping into an ice cold river, and not coming out freezing to death. So I want to ask you, 
what compelled you to, to, to seek out Wim Hof, to learn a little bit more about him before you got to actually writing the book, What Doesn't Kill Us? Well, it all started back in uh, 2010 uh, when I saw a photo of him sitting on an iceberg. Uh, and he was, you know, Wim is this, uh, you know, he's a Dutch uh, fitness guru, I guess you could call him. And he, you know, was known at this point for doing some sort of crazy, almost clownish uh, feats in the ice. You know, there would be like, there, there was like a popular commercial for Columbia Sportswear of him jumping into a, like a hole of ice and like hanging out in like a, you know, pond somewhere, a frozen pond somewhere. And, uh, and someone would come up with an electric jacket, be like, if you're not Wim Hof, you might want an electric jacket. And that was like basically what Wim Hof was known for. He was sort of like this crazy Dutch dude that everyone sort of thought of as a joke. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 2000, in January 2011, uh, he was going to be running his very first training course saying, hey, you can do this too. And he was making these like sort of outrageous claims. He was saying, uh, he, you know, his, his method could let you take control of your immune system, that anyone could go hang out on their underwear in an iceberg and, and do these things that look sort of like, I don't know, anti-scientific, a little crazy, a little sort of overblown. And at this point, as an investigative journalist, I had been writing a lot about sort of charlatan gurus who offered surprisingly similar things, and we're getting people killed, and we're stealing their money, we're doing all sorts of these crazy things. And you can look that stuff up. I have a book called The Enlightenment Trap, where I sort of went really deep and down to that hole, where people have these sort of meditation techniques that do some cool things, but also get... Um, sort of re-identified uh, to, to, their, to their students to be sort of bigger than they actually are. Because um, meditation is cool, but it's not superhuman, right? It's not magic. And, and, and I think they're sort of conflating these two things. So I, uh, I knew what Wim was doing was compelling, right? I, 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 I could see that there was something really interesting in this. And I figured that he was going to get famous and like start you know, stealing people's money and, you know, or even worse, putting people in actual physical danger. So I flew out to Poland uh, and I was living in LA at that time and, and, uh, and I meet him and Wim is, you know, I wasn't very impressed at first, you know, Wim is, uh, you know, he's got this big bulging red alcoholic nose because he'd been an alcoholic for decades at that point. Uh, he speaks in like non sequitur sentences where you're not sure what the subject is, but you can tell that he's got a huge ego and uh, and he smelled bad. He smelled terrible. And so I was like, whoa. I'm like basically following a homeless man into the woods and we're going to sit naked on a snowbank. That's crazy. And, um, you know, one thing leads to another and I'm doing that. I'm doing that with Wim. And, I, you know, as an anthropologist and an investigative journalist, I have the option to sit outside uh, and just sort of write something without trying it out, or I can try it out and both sort of offer a certain type of insight into what, you know, whatever it is I'm studying. And, and, you know, there, even though I was not very impressed with Wim, I would say that I could tell he was earnest and that he believed this. And I just figured that no matter what the, you know, I figured I wouldn't die. <laughs> I wasn't sure, but I figured I wouldn't die. And, uh, and, and I wanted to give him a shot. So I did. And, uh, and to my great surprise, it worked. Like, you know, I was, 
you know, doing his breathing method. And then at the end of the breathing method, I was doing push-ups while holding my breath. I could do more push-ups than I'd ever done in my life. I was walking out into the snow and, you know, at first it was terrible the first day, but the second day was easier and the next day was easier than that. And then by the end of a week, I was walking up a mountain in Poland uh, in my underwear, basically. And it, I was warm. So I realized that Wim, you know, he had a method that was working. He was not lying. His earnestness was true. And, and I went on to eventually, you know, I wrote the article initially for Playboy and then, then it turned into the book, What Doesn't Kill Us, where I'm asking the question, what is it that gives us these powers or are they powers at all? And, you know, the, the conclusion that, you know, and the sort of the process of writing that book, it, it's not like prana coming down from heaven, like some sort of like fake superpower from the yoga tradition. It's actually just an evolutionary power that every human has. Uh, and and the, the reason why it looks so crazy is that we're way too comfortable as a species. We live in like these air-conditioned houses and, uh, you know, we have we have heating all through the winter and we don't use our bodies the way that we evolved to. So Wim Hof is not actually like all that um, in a way, he's not even all that interesting, uh, except for the fact that he has opened the store and, and, and sort of puts up a mirror to the, the crazy amounts of comfort that we all live in uh, in sort of this day and age. Yeah, that's awesome. Um and I, and I like that it was at first your, your interest as an investigative journalist, you know, in finding out if there's some truth to this. And then you found out that there is some truth to what, you know, to what he says. And I found that out myself as well. I could remember the first time I decided to walk around my neighborhood in the winter and we'd had, it was the first snowfall of several inches. Um, and I went out in only shorts and, <laughs> and I remember passing a neighbor that said, aren't you freezing? And I could confidently look at him and say, no, actually I'm not. Um, and it was, it's just, it was my realization that there's something about this, you know, it's, it's actually working. And I, I do have some readers who may have an, an interest in the science. So can you take a, I know to really answer this is a long, long answer, but talk a little bit about something, why something like cold exposure, gradual cold exposure works. Why do we, you know, over time, eventually are able to do something like walk outside in a pair of shorts in the winter? I mean, it's not even gradual cold exposure. It's more like fast cold exposure um, is that when you uh, our bodies are, are, you know, evolved to adapt quickly to cold weather. You know, it's not like you see it like there, you, you look out your window like, oh, there's going to be a storm here any minute now. And then I'll just I'll take four or five days to get ready for it. It's like, no, the snow is there. So your body is primed to change to the environment and has all sorts of adaptations. Uh, uh, and we can't probably go into all of them uh, that allow you to heat yourself. You know, one is just the movement of your muscles. Like if you move a lot, you get warmer, right? That's a very easy thing. Um, but there's also metabolic changes where you don't have to be moving as much, where you can, uh, where you can uh, be okay in the cold. And there's also there's the mindset. Like probably the biggest change is just. It's just, you know, it's the anticipation of what you think the cold's going to feel like, but you've maybe never done it before. Yeah. And, and so you just think, oh my God, an ice bath is the worst possible thing in the world, but you've never gone in an ice bath. So it's just like your brain playing out 
a, a script that it honestly has no clue what it's about. So when you actually put yourself in that situation, now you're given a sort of psychological challenge where your body and your mind are in conversation to decide, well, is this actually dangerous? Mm. And the crazy thing is, is that for the most part, it's not like, I mean, hypothermia does exist, right? Obviously it exists, but you hit that point so much later than you might anticipate. And on your way down to hypothermia, you have a lot of like choices for things that you can do to warm yourself up. And as you expose yourself to cold more frequently, your body develops metabolic processes and metabolic tissues that make it even easier to adopt uh, or adapt to uh, that new environment. And so, you know, overall, putting yourself in challenging situations and challenging environments makes you more resilient to, uh, to those specific challenges, but also in general to challenges that you might make because there's sort of this generalizable effect uh, that you, you know, if, if you do more things, you can do more things. Like it's sort of this additive um, ability. So, you know, I've found the Wim Hof method is, you know, been, you know, that exposure to Wim Hof has been life-changing for me, not just because of the method, but because of the change in perspective um, that it has offered me. But I do want to note one thing that now after having been doing this for 12 years now, I have uh, some different perspectives and what, you know, what, what was, was starting to emerge in the book, but weren't fully formed because, you know, I went out initially to debunk Wim Hof as a charlatan guru, right? And, and I, his method worked and I was like, dude, there's something real here. There's something great. Uh, and Wim Hof was not a famous at all. He was like a nobody on the on on the on the the global stage. But now, as you know, after my book comes out, after Vice and Joe Rogan and all these other people cover him, he has become something of an international superstar, right? He's mm -hmm. got a show with Oprah coming out in in England, and he's doing these really big things. He's hanging out with celebrities all the time. And I would say that if I were going to write the same article now, he would not get off so easy because. Wim, Wim Hof is, has sort of like risen up to a place where he is almost overblown. And, and now people look at him almost as like a god, right? Like, oh my God, this Wim Hof guy has the secret. And the truth is the secret is in all of us. Like we all are able to do this stuff. Yeah. And, and people are now sort of like taking Wim's words as gospel. But remember, his words are freaking madness half the time. They're non sequiturs. <laughs> he doesn't understand the science. He, he just sort of like makes shit up. And he'll say things like, this will cure AIDS. This will cure COVID. This yeah. will cure, you know, all these things that there is no science behind. And it's actually, frankly, dangerous and idiotic uh, to, to go there. So, you know, at the end of what doesn't kill us. I'm climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro with Wim. I'm in my skivvies again because I'm I'm getting near the top. And Wim does the does sort of a thing that makes the whole group mutiny against him because they think they're going to put he's going to put them in danger. And in truth, he was putting the whole group in danger. And he sort of like runs up the mountain without us. And probably the only reason I chase after him is because I have to write a freaking book, right? Uh, and yeah. and I do and and. And I think it's important to realize that while Wim Hof is something of a prophet, because he sort of like opens the door for modern people knowing about how to interact with the elements, 
He's also a freaking madman. Mm-hmm. And do not idolize this guy. He's just awesome in his own right, but he's got huge limitations. And I feel like now that I've been sort of on this path for so long, I have to be more vocal about this in the world because uh, we need to, to accept the greatness that he's been able to show, but do it in a measured way where we're not just sort of going crazy. <laughs> right. And, and that's why uh, we haven't mentioned your, your next book to follow that, uh, The Wedge, mm-hmm. where you touch on, you know, look, there are a lot of things that our body can do that we don't know about. And so, and you mentioned Wim and the Wim Hof movement in that book as well, but you expand on a lot of other, um, what people call hacks, you know, with our body, but you more or less, you know, that term hack has been re, you know, misused a lot too, when people talk about this type of practice, but more like unlocking, finding that, you know, what you refer to as the wedge, that, that limit, what you think is the limit to what your body can do but training it and realizing that it can go beyond that. And that's, that's the moment. Um, and so that's why I appreciated the follow-up book to what doesn't kill us because you, you go into like, look, this is not just the point you just made. Wim Hof is awesome. He's hilarious. He's fun to watch, you know, and would probably be a cool person to hang out with. Um, you know, but let's keep in mind that he's not a scientist. Um, he, you know, and he doesn't understand some of the, more medical aspects and scientific aspects that go along with this. Right. Um, and that, so in your, your follow-up book, The Wedge, you expand on other things that our body, we can be surprised are capable of doing. And I remember a story, I think it was in The Wedge, where you're throwing kettlebells mm-hmm. with a guy. You're not exercising with kettlebells, although it is exercising. You're not doing the typical standard workout right. with kettlebells, but you're throwing them. Mm-hmm. And I remember you, you'd said something about like, it was terrifying, but the surprising thing was, is it was like your instinct kicked in and you were able to catch it, mm-hmm. but it was also calculated. It's not like the guy just threw a kettlebell at you, you know? Right. So, so the, the point of the kettlebell throwing and the point of the wedge really to, to really understand what the, the kettlebell is all about is, yes. is, is the wedge is like, you're, is, when you get put into an environment, the environment sends your body and your mind a message. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is like what you're supposed to do automatically without thinking. So when you look at the ice bath, you're like, fuck no. Like there, you, all of these sensations in your body telling you don't even try it. Then yeah. you get in the ice water and your body still says, fuck no. And, it's, and, it's try, and, and you try to clench up. Your body has this automatic re- response to clench. And what you're actually doing in the ice water is you're trying to will yourself to relax in it and realize that that environment is not as uh, dangerous as as your body is telling it. And so by literally just inserting this space between the stimulus of the outside world and the response that your body automatically wants to give, you're, you're creating this wedge that allows you to adapt to the environment. Now, uh, that's what happens in ice water, but in every single environment that exists in the world, whether it is a uh, like a physical environment where like ice water does something or an emotional environment, like you're arguing with your child or your mother or your wife, right? Um, there are um, things that sort of trigger you where you have this decision where are you going to automatically react or are you not? Are you going to be able to insert a wedge or are you not? Now, in the terms of kettlebells, what we're doing is creating a... Uh, a, a situation that on the surface feels 
and potentially is dangerous. So a kettlebell is like a 20 to 40 pound to 50 pound weight uh, with a little hook, uh, like a hook thing on the top, not a hook, a, a handle on handle, the top. Yeah. Yeah. And you literally, you swing it between your legs and you're looking at another person in the eyes and you, you throw it, it flips through the air, the other person catches it. And then they, you start playing catch back and forth. Now, mm -hmm. the first time you do this, and even when I describe it on this podcast, you're going to be thinking that's dangerous. You're going to break a foot. And <laughs> that is precisely the point. You're creating an environment where one of you could have a very horrible injury on your foot. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and like the ice water, you think I could die of hypothermia. Yeah, you could absolutely die of hypothermia, but you're not going to. You're going to do things to make yourself not do that. And it's the same thing with the kettlebells. You realize that one the actual motion of catching a kettlebell is pretty simple, right? It's not, this is not like so, like rocket science. This is catching a ball with a handle on it. And, you know, you keep your feet wide and you're sort of aiming in between. I mean, you need some sort of like dexterity, but not a lot. And, uh, and what you, but what you learn is that this is not an exercise about getting swall or looking good on Instagram. It's an exercise to create trust between the two people who are literally holding in each other's hands the, the, a weapon that could damage the other person. But you don't want to do that. You want to throw it as skillfully and as lovingly as you can to the other person to build a sense of community. And this becomes like sort of more of a dance than sort of a douchey, bro-y, you know, kettlebell throwing thing. Uh, and, and so you build empathy with that partner. And, and, and so you're working on these sort of internal mental and emotional states rather than the, the, you know, just your muscle workout, you're trying to build something uh, greater, something emotional. And the environment you've created demands that. That's an excellent way to explain that. Definitely, definitely articulated it better than I did. <laughs> um, so as, as part of what you're talking about in the wedge, like something similar to, to like to hormesis, where you're using stress or, or a stressful situation to sort of, um, you know, train your body into being more aware of or, or to respond to stress in a different way, in a better way. Hormesis is generally defined as a passive process. Um, I mean, I, there's certainly a connection between the idea of hormesis and what I'm doing, but hormesis, the way we, we generally describe it in sort of biological materials is like, you know, you have birds and you give them little bits of arsenic and by giving them arsenic, they lay eggs that are stronger um, because they have a challenge from the environment. Like the bird isn't thinking, I need a stronger egg. It's sort of like the environment sort of forces that onto the whatever biological internal processes make that happen. So yes, that, that's what hormesis is. And it's the same thing with, you know, lifting weights. At first, you're, you're, you're your arms are weak, you put it under the stress of lifting weights and the arms get bigger and stronger. That's, that's essentially what hormesis is about. And there's certainly a cognate to the wedge because what the wedge is doing is actually, um, there's an intentional element of it. You expose yourself to stress and then you think, you realize, you, you look at the sensations that that stress gives rise to in your body and then you decide how you want to respond to it so it sort of activates that hermetic process um certainly related but i don't think they're exactly the same thing gotcha thank you for clearing that up 
Awesome. Um, I'm going to, uh, you talked a little bit about your book, What Doesn't Kill Us. You talked about The Wedge. Um, you mentioned your fir- uh, earlier book. Um, I want to ask you, if you don't care, just some fun, rapid fire questions. Sure. And you can make these relevant to what we've been talking about. Uh, in fact, the way I ask some of them will. Um, but what is something that when people learn about, you know, the things you've written in your book, when people learn about what you do as an investigative journalist, uh, what is something that they seem to misunderstand about you? Oh, I, I think, this, I mean, a lot of things. Like, I don't think people read my books. I think that they read their own reaction to my books. Like, I don't think there is like, there's no such thing as like objectivity, even when you have the thing right in front of you. So I'll get bizarre responses from readers that are all over the map, both they think I'm way more awesome than I am. <laughs> that sometimes happens. <laughs> and sometimes they think I'm way less awesome than I am. And I don't think many people hit me on target. Um, but uh, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, some people think that I'm like some sort of epitome of human health because I've done these crazy things. And that's not true. I'm not like not in good shape, but I'm not in like, I, I don't, my six packs don't have six packs, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and at the same time, I think that some people also think that an investigative journalist, because I changed my mind about whim, that means I have to change my mind about everything people send me. So people send me some batshit, like conspiracy theories, like pretty much every day. And, and they're like, well, you're an investigative journalist. You do your research on this. And I'm like, that's not my job. Like, like <laughs> what are you fucking talking about? If, you're, if your idea is crazy and there's no merit to it, I'm not going to go investigate it. So I think that's like one one thing that often happens. Another thing that happens to like every investigative journalist that I talk to, uh, that I know, and I know a lot of, of, of us guys and girls, um, is that there's a certain type of source that comes to me thinking that they're deep throat in the Watergate investigation. And they're like, yeah, I want to meet you. It's got to be so secret. And we're going to, you know, I'll meet you in like some random parking lot or something like that. And they think that just because they want to be secretive about it, that I have to give a fuck. And usually if you do meet these people, they've got nothing. They, they're just like, like the government's after us. It's like, what the, what the fuck, what? <laughs> do you, <laughs> proof, my friends, <laughs> what are you talking about? And so I think a lot of people think that journalism is not, um, uh, or investigative journalism is about uh, following every cockamamie idea that the planet can throw up to you. No, we're, we're a little like scientists. Like we need actual evidence for what we, what we work on. Yeah. That's, that's what I was going to ask you about is I'm sure people are pitching you ideas all the time for things that you should write about. And that you, you know, that raise some eyebrows like that's no, I'm not going to research that. Thanks anyway. <laughs> yeah. Funny. I mean, you know, I don't mind being surprised by things, but you need to show me evidence to be surprised. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's not our obligation to be like, here's a random drug that will cure COVID. Here's like, you know, here's an organ trafficker who steals toes. Like, but but they don't have anything to like show. Here's a toe. Like, I need the fucking toe if you're going to talk to me about the person who's stealing the toes. Yeah. So then what would you say is one way that, um, other than some of the obvious stuff you've talked about, what would you say is one way that writing has made a difference in your life that you didn't expect? I have no idea how to answer that question. Um, I mean, I, I always wanted to be a writer, you know, at least since high school, I was sort of interested in doing this. Um, I'm, I'm surprised I've been able to make it work. Like I have a living, like I've owned a house, like I'm surprised that, that I've been able to sort of 
um, been able to marry the 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 economics of writing with the actual um, you know still retaining my soul and doing like good writing like you know that's that's sort of a difficult thing to manage uh, and I think I've done it very well um, but I, I don't think that's really the question that you're asking uh, well yeah I don't know what I was expecting when I become a writer I, I will say that I'm very fortunate to be able to think about cool things stay on a topic for a year and have adventures as I do it I mean I cannot imagine a better job than that uh, and that's that's great that's good yeah I know that that one of the most challenging things is navigating the market, you know, mm -hmm. and actually getting your book out there and getting your writing out there. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably the hardest part of it. Uh, if not the actual part of sitting down and getting started, you know, when you have an idea and getting started. Um, I mean, I write, but it's the market that I've never had the, the, the courage or the patience to try to, to try to tackle. <laughs> so I appreciate you yeah. sharing that. I mean, it's certainly hard. I do have a book called The Quick and Dirty Guide to Freelance Writing that I wrote like eight years ago, which does sort of talk about what the business method uh, is for I for writing. I probably would write it a little differently now, but the, you know, I think what people often don't understand is that you need to write, you have to write things that are that are honest and that are that are good, but you mm -hmm. also need to consider what people are going to want to read and yeah. And uh, and so you you sort of have to if you're a nonfiction you need to to find what is marketable in the topic that that uh, you know what is interesting not just to me as the solipsistic writer who wants to do this thing what is actually going to be of benefit to people uh, and make them want to pick up this book and that's always a very very hard thing to do and and generally the way I write a book pitch or an article pitch is I think to myself how will this thing that I'm doing right now turn into a movie like I try to think like where does Brad Pitt fit in my thing if we fictionalize it and make it awesome and if I can't start to at least like point fingers in those directions I know that my idea is probably not going anywhere <laughs> Well, you know that Brad Pitt definitely going to play you. He's definitely going to play you in the movie version of What Doesn't Kill Us. I think he's getting too old. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. I know. Old. I'm kidding. I'm totally <laughs> joking. Uh, just because you mentioned him, that's the only reason why I, I, I name dropped him. No, yeah, that's that's a lot of really good advice, and it's like I said, that's we, we know what we like as writers. We know what we want to write about. It's just a matter of if if you plan on entering the market and sharing your stuff and you want your stuff to be published, you really do have to take into consideration, do people want to read this? I mean, just because your friends want to read it and your family members want to leave it, read it, doesn't mean that, you know, a publisher or, you know, is anyone that there's going to be a market for it outside of that. So that's, that's a really important thing to mention. So then what would you say were some of the, bre the best resources that have helped you along the way as a writer? Oh, talking to other writers who are successful is definitely the only place to to get advice because everyone has opinions about writing. A lot of people say that they are writers when they instead what they do is they write like like if you want to be a writer who is going to be financially successful, you better talk to other financially successful writers uh, who are in that genre versus people who have like all sorts of cockamamie ideas for what actually happened. So you have to talk to other people, uh, however you can, who are actually doing the thing that you want to do. And 
And yeah, I, I, I got some very good advice early on in my career by this guy named Josh Davis, who was a Wired writer, who really taught me to think about um, stories in ways that are both entertaining and um, saleable and like how, how to marry those things very early on. Uh, yeah, I, I, and when you take advice, even on like the editing of your project, you have to realize what advice not to take because not everyone gives good advice. And you also need to decide to take advice from as few people as possible. Because if you have too many cooks in the kitchen, even if everyone's advice is good, their all advice is all different. And then you just create this horrible um, uh, product that's that it doesn't have a center anymore. So um, work with a few really good people is so much better than, than going wide. Yeah. Um, when I was in college and for a few years after that, I used to attend a uh, writer's conference here in West Virginia. And there were about, you know, anywhere from at a time, 10 to 30 published authors from the Appalachian or West Virginia area. Uh, and so it was hopeful for me to meet people, you know, within this region who had been published, who had done really well. Um, and then also great to attend some of their courses and learn from them. And then to sit down and talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, you know, mm -hmm. the ones I really admired, like you said, if, you know, if you have a person whose advice really resonates with you and you have the opportunity to sit with that person, it's just like mentoring, you know, with, with any other skill that you want to develop, it's great to, to work with a person who has done it well and knows the market or knows whatever that skill may be mm -hmm. and learn from them. So yeah, very well said. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I, I'm going to go ahead and hit you with the final question that I've often asked on this podcast. Um, my podcast, uh, for the most part, I interview people who I feel are, are making a difference in the world. They're using their unique skills and talents you know, to, to make a difference, either in their community or in the world in some way. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you, how do you feel you've made a difference? Oh, I mean, uh, I think that the 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 my general drive to spread truth and sort of like shuck out bullshit from reality has been sort of a major drive in all of my work. Um, and uh, I mean, it's my, it's my constant thing is that I need to go take a rational look at the world and, and try to, uh, you know, sift through the, the huge amount of information that exists to tell a story that is both can reach a lot of people, but also is honest at its core. And I think, you know, I've also mentored a lot of people. I have, um, uh, you know, I, I do get emails from people all the time who say that the Wim Hof method has changed their life and that my work does great things for their bodies. And I think that's great. Those are awesome things. Uh, some of my early work, I helped, you know, uncover a lot of like organized crime and, and I, I was, I, I was one of the people who made it illegal for people, for surrogate mothers to have their, in India, to like basically baby factories where Indian surrogate mothers were having like foreigners come in and incubate in Indian wombs. I was part, one of the people who got that, made that illegal. But, you know, it's, you know, any one thing to point to is, is sort of hard to say, you know, the question in many ways is, is uh, what will impact will I make in 30 years? Like if people look back at the stuff that I've done, will anything have changed because of me? Maybe, I mean, maybe not. I mean, it's sort of hubris to think that we have like all that much influence. Uh, I just try to live my life as well as possible. Mm -hmm.
Hey there, podcast listeners. I want to pause for just a moment to tell you about Mountain Care Network. Mountain Care Network is a mental and behavioral health agency, and it was created to increase accessibility to mental health services and decrease the stigma associated with mental illness in West Virginia. The wonderful people of Mountain Care Network believe that a healthy mind leads to a healthy life, which creates stronger families and communities. And they understand that life is difficult at times. So if you or a loved one needs support, Mountain Care Network makes it easy to refer and receive services. Their team of licensed professionals provide services in a variety of settings, including the office, homes, schools, and other community settings, and via telehealth. The people of Mountain Care Network, they meet you where you are. In fact, that is one of their slogans. We meet you where you are. So if you'd like to learn more, please check out Mountain Care Network's website at mountaincarenetwork.com. Well, having read What Doesn't Kill Us and then read The Wedge following up, I can tell you that I, I made some changes and choices in my life in terms of just, just different lifestyle choices. And in investigative journalism to me is an opportunity for, you know, or when a reader reads a work of investigative journalism, at least gives them an opportunity to rethink what they thought they knew about something, you know? Um, and, and that in itself challenges the person to be a more thoughtful individual and not take something at face value. Cause you know, cause you and I, cause I follow you on Instagram and, you know, we chat back and forth that our complaints are the same that unfortunately we have a society now where it's like, you believe what you're told by somebody without questioning or challenging it, but then you throw out what you heard, like it's fact or like it's research, you know? <laughs> and I can imagine that's frustrating for someone who does actual investigative journalism and work to get to the real answer and the real truth. And then people just hear it from uncle Joe, or they see it online on one webpage and they start spouting it off like it's fact. Right. There's not a lot of respect for expertise anymore in America. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's crazy that we, 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 you know, people read a blog post uh, or an article somewhere and they're like, well, the CDC doesn't know what the fuck they're doing. And, and uh, what, or, you know, it, it's, it's actually equally true to, to some degree on the left and the right. It's like, we have these assumptions for how the, how we want the world to work. And we assume that that is also the, re the objective reality of how the world works. And uh, for some reason we, I mean, in some ways, uh, th there are there are absolutely instances where where people in authority have misused their mm. authority in very very bad ways, right? And uh, and and you're like, oh shit, that governor, that congressman, that president, that whatever did this bad thing, and 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 I want to hold them accountable. But the the problem that we as Americans and probably people over the world do is that we try to hold those individuals accountable by by suggesting that the institutions behind them are inherently you know terrible yeah. and then we have nothing in our minds for what to replace it with like nothing for you know hey democracy sucks in so many fucking ways like democracy is terrible except 
what else is better? Like, like a dictatorship, a, um, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, of some one political party, other doing, running everything. Like we, we have this, this sort of cavalier attitude uh, that, that things that have, that, that exist already are inherently wrong. And we need like a revolution. Well, having been to countries that have been in revolution before, I will promise you, they are terrible places to be in. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, the idea of like, yeah, if we just, you know, remove this person's power. If we have a war, if we have do whatever, uh, then we'll put something better in, in its place is such a fiction. It's so idiotic. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's clear that people who are having those ideas have actually never been through a hardship. Right. Yeah. Some very excellent points. And that's, trust me, I, I as an educator, it, it just, it burns me up when I see people who adult people I feel should know better. Mm -hmm. that are just spouting off something that they heard or read online on one website. I'm like, you should know to find the information, look deeper, dig deeper, mm -hmm. do more research. Um, and you're right. It's, it's scary when during a global pandemic, the doctors and the scientists are the ones who are getting the harshest criticism and right. being told they're full of shit and don't know what they're talking about. But uncle Joe, you know, whose brother got COVID, even though he got the vaccination, that suddenly means nobody should get the vaccination because it right. doesn't work. Right. You know, it's just absurd. Well, I, I find the, the COVID stuff like particularly interesting because, you know, I've written a lot of books that are very critical of the medical system. Yeah. I am very critical of a lot of things in the medical system. I have looked at criminal doctors. I've looked at, at corrupt institutions. Like I've been there for this, this stuff. However, the one thing that Western medicine is really, really good at is acute illnesses that have specific causes. Like, like if you're sick because of bacteria is in your body, um, Western medicine's really good at killing that one bacteria, right? If you get shot with a bullet, Western surgery is really good at fixing the stuff up because they know what the cause of that bullet is. We're not good with arthritis. We're not good with chronic conditions. We're not good with lupus and these other sort of like things where it's like sort of the environment, there's like 50 different causes. Western medicine's terrible at that. But with COVID, it's obvious, like there is a virus, we have identified it, there's different variants. And we, we know that if we can uh, target this thing that's in you, we can fix the condition that that thing arises in your body. And that is like dead center, what Western medicine has been good at for at least 120 years. And we should be like, cool, let's do that. Now, if instead, you know, people will also say, well, we're not worried about people with heart degree disease. And, you know, they make these chronic conditions. It's like, you're right, Western medicine's terrible at treating heart disease and obesity and these things that have like 50 causes. And we should get better at that. And we should actually look outside the paradigm of Western medicine to do that. But when something is like dead center, like if you have like a, an engineering problem and you're like, I should go hire an engineer to fix that, that's what's going on with, with COVID. It's not like we have an engineering problem, I'm gonna hire an artist. No, that's an idiotic thing. And that's what people are doing right now. Yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it really is. And, and, and being in the schools, um, you know, it's, I can't understand how someone can think, okay, there's, there's a pandemic. It's clearly contagious, highly mm -hmm. contagious. And some people are getting very sick from it. Even if they're not dying, they're mm -hmm. getting very sick from it and having to be hospitalized. But we have an institution that has anywhere from, depending on the school, 200 to a thousand people. Mm -hmm but the local government doesn't want to make everyone wear masks. 
They don't want to mandate social distancing and masks. And then they say, my gosh, why do we have 150 kids out sick today with COVID? Mm-hmm. <laughs> why, because- why do we have to close schools again? Well, mm-hmm. because you didn't do any of the things that all of the experts who have right. this, this expertise have told you to do. Right. Yeah, it's this is this is the challenge that the world is in. And I don't have too much hope for it's going to get much better, but um, you know something something's going to happen, and we'll I, I would say get vaccinated and just you know sit back and hope. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your your? You have a new book that's out now that was just recently released, or was the wave the last one? The wedge. The wedge was the, I mean, the wedge. The wedge the was one. the last book that came okay. out about a year ago. I have a new book coming out in March. Okay. called The Vortex, which is not about body hacking or anything like that. It's about uh, the deadliest storm in human history, which is the 1970 Bola cyclone that killed half a million people in what is now Bangladesh. And uh, what happened in this storm is that it hit this coastline, killed a bunch of people. But at that point, Bangladesh was, what is now Bangladesh was actually something called East Pakistan. So what we think of as Pakistan now was West Pakistan and East Pakistan was Bangladesh. And this storm created a ripple of events that flipped an election in in Pakistan so that the Bangladeshis would have had basically control of all of Bangladesh, of all of Pakistan. The Pakistanis hated that. And they were there. They basically tried to shut down the election by committing a genocide and killing uh, about three million people in horrible ways, Hmm. uh, which created a refugee movement where everyone left fled out of East Pakistan. They went to India. And India was like, we don't want your refugees. We're going to invade you. But because Pakistan was a U.S. strong ally, and the, the head of Pakistan uh, was like best friends with Nixon, uh, and and you know he he was doing a lot of favors for Nixon at this time. Uh, and India was a Soviet ally. This created a situation where the United States and the USSR sent their fleets into the Bay of Bengal, and we were probably like an hour or two away from launching nukes uh, in 1971, 1971, 1972. Uh, um, And the only reason it didn't happen is because DACA fell to the rebels. And it's it's this moment that we've totally forgotten about in, in, uh, at least in America. And, and yet it's a, it's such a great allegory for what's happening in the future of climate change, because we're living in a world where we're having more and more storms more and more powerful storms hitting coastlines and more and more vulnerable areas. And, and every time you do that, you're, you're, you're rolling the dice because that storm doesn't just land on a coastline, it lands in a political environment. And you know, we, we think about what happened with the, the, that, that boat that got, got turned sideways in the Suez. Like our economy is so linked up right now, the globally, that if one little hiccup happens, all of our supply chains get messed up, which then put, creates disturbances everywhere. And we're so fragile right now that climate change, the thing that we have to worry about with climate change is not the drying up of your well, not having water and, and heat. That stuff's going to come and that stuff's going to suck. But the real thing we have to worry about is the human conflict that's going to come from these events as they occur. And that'll get us well before we actually have to worry about climate change. Yeah, I think oftentimes when a, when a major natural disaster happens in the world, so many people who are in more developed countries like America don't understand the potential ripple effect that could mm-hmm. occur 
in America as a result of something like that. And then, yeah, so climate change, people think it just means it's going to get hotter, right? The earth is just going to get hotter. And it's like, well, no, these, these third world countries, these other areas that are getting hit hard right. by climate change, there's going to be an impact that's going to trickle to us. It already has. It's mm -hmm. just maybe in subtle ways to most people. So yeah. it's going to get more and more obvious over the next 30 years uh, where we see one event or another. Like right now, currently, India has built a wall around Bangladesh. You know, we talk about the wall on our southern border, but there's a wall armed with soldiers with machine guns, and they're killing people like all the time who approach this, this wall. And the reason they built that is because they're like, we don't want climate change to create millions and millions of refugees who come at us. Now, if that's not a flashpoint, and you don't think that millions of people moving from one place to another on the other side of the world won't affect us, you are, we are crazy. No, for sure. And that's what I love about your work. I, you know, and I'll kind of end with that. It's just that all of your books that I have read have been about more than what they seem to be about, mm -hmm. which is it, it's, that's a sign of good investigative journalism because it's, you're literally saying, look, what you think I'm going to write about, I am and more. Mm -hmm. And so that's great because that, that kind of uh, teaches us to, to look outside of what we think that something is and dig deeper into it and learn about more about the surrounding stories or the surrounding issues, the issues that are impacted by or the things that impacted whatever the main topic is. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate you agreeing to be on my podcast. Um, tell my uh, listeners how they can learn a little bit more about you, about your books. Uh, do you have social media they could follow or a website? Yeah, um, Scott Carney uh, on, in the Google will get you to scottcarney.com. Um, also, SG Carney on both uh, Twitter and Instagram. I'm not really anywhere else. I, I sort of got off Facebook because that place is crazy. And... Uh, but yeah, you can find me. I have a mailing list. I have all that stuff. But, uh, you know, I don't know, buy my books or something, whatever, whatever you're supposed to say at this point in the podcast. <laughs> Definitely buy make his me, books. Make, make me their... rich. Make me rich. <laughs> uh, he's not doing it for the money, although he does appreciate the money. <laughs> I'm doing it for the money. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Scott. Well, it's been a pleasure. And I know that you and I will keep in touch. And, and maybe some other day, there'll be something else that we can talk about. Then I'll get you on here again. Sounds good. Appreciate it. Thank you, man. All right, buddy. Have a great one. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Lilypad podcast. For more information about our show and for notes about each episode, be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Lilypad podcast. And if you enjoyed this show, give us a follow on Spotify. Or if you listen on Apple podcasts, be sure to give us a rating and review. It really helps other people learn about this podcast. So once again, thanks for listening.